Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Markun Aurora, bridging the gaps between consumers, science, and business in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Negam Aurora, your lead moderator for the show today, and I'm joined by several amazing guests. First, I'd like to introduce Anna Simons, who's a program manager at Etheridge Foundation and an ambassador for Athletes for Care. Hey! Great to have you back on the show. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Adriana Kurtzer, founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group. Hello, hello, hello. Great to have you on the show. And uh, finally, I'd like to welcome Hadas Alterman, who is founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group and incoming director of state initiatives at the American Psychedelics Practitioners Association. Uh, say hey to everyone, Hadas. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you all here. And I'd also like to shout out our very own Dr. Jehan Marku, who is usually here with us, but has been called away to attend to some urgent cannabis and psychedelics science matters. So we wish him well. So for the show today, listener, we have a fun psychedelics focused program, and we'll talk about some pretty interesting topics. First, we're going to begin with a game about picks and shovels in the psychedelics industry a favorite topic of our colleagues at Plant Medicine Law Group. From there, we'll go on to our news segment where we'll talk about a press release focused on the American Psychedelics Practitioners Association launching a nonprofit. And of course, we have APPA's own Hadas Alterman here with us to give us the inside scoop. For our final segment, we'll discuss a peer-reviewed article published in Anthropology of Consciousness titled Indigenous Philosophies and the Psychedelics Renaissance. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our game. And we're back. So we'll start our game segment now focused on psychedelics, picks and shovels. So we see a few different picks and shovels plays in the psychedelics industry. If you think about it as a parallel to the California gold rush, the psychedelic compounds or the drugs themselves are the gold. And then we have several areas that are commonly thought of as the picks and shovels. So these include the clinics where the therapy will take place the therapists who are specifically trained in those psychedelics-assisted therapy methodologies, as well as enabling technologies. So we're going to take a look into each of these areas for our game. So remember, panelists, this is a closed book slash internet test, so don't cheat, don't be Googling. And uh, for our first round, everyone is going to get uh, just one guess, and whoever gets closest on each of these questions will get a point. Let's just get into it. We're going to start with clinics. So, according to modernhealthcare.com, as of 2021, how many private clinics are there in the United States offering ketamine treatment? Again, in 2021, how many private clinics are there in the United States offering ketamine treatment? So whoever wants to go first can chime in. We're looking for a number. 
I'm going to be annoying and ask questions. One, are we talking telehealth? I'm assuming telehealth is different. This is brick and mortar. Two, um, this is, we are including like ketamine assisted therapy plus like go somewhere, sit in a chair and just be infused and left on your own journey. Those are both clinics. So we, we welcome questions on the game. So this is awesome. Also, um, you don't like this. No, no, I love it. I love it. No, we love questions. No, sincerely, I didn't mean that. So sometimes people can't tell when I'm being sarcastic. I'm being sincere. So um, we love questions. The answer to your question is modernhealthcare.com did not define it. Um, but let's just say any and all, anywhere that will is a private practice that will provide ketamine therapy would fall in this bucket. I'm going to say around a thousand. Okay, Hadass is in with a thousand ketamine clinics in the U.S. in 2021. Who else has got a guess? 2021, I would say 250. Okay, Adriana with 250. Wow, I'm so glad that they went first. <laughs> in my head, I was like 75, 80, but now, but then after Hadass went, I was like, well, maybe I don't know. It'll be I'll kind of split the difference a little and say like 300. Okay. And I like that you specified 2021 because I think the, mm -hmm. the big difference is 2021 to 2022. You guys, I think I got nervous and way overshot it. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> it's fine. It's be, not like chest I feel like I should off. actually go. My point, this won't count for my points, but this is if just for my change personal it, the time. pride. I think it's probably like just shy of 100. Oh, so I was closer. Hmm. Fi okay, so let's submit our final guesses. I'm going to give everyone one more chance. So, Hadas, final guess. 98. Okay, uh, Adriana, final guess. I'm sticking to 250. Okay, and Anna, you're at 300. Final guess. No, no, no. I'm going to... So I'm going to split the difference between that guess and my original when I was like 75 or 80. I'm going to go 125. Anna's going to win. Okay, okay, okay. All right. So um, here we go. So, um, there, there's a part two, so I'm going to do this in a certain order. So shocker. Um, the answer to the question is 570. Oh my God. So it looks like Anna would have won before, but after the edits, Adriana wins. So Adriana with the point and, uh, I'm kind of making this up as I go. So we're still at round one and we have a follow-up question. As of the date of this recording, November 18th, 2022, of those 570 and presumably more ketamine clinics now, now in 2022, how many are paying to have their clinic listed on ketamineclinicdirectory.org, the self-proclaimed number one ketamine website on the internet? So again, the question is, of these 570 clinics and more, how many are paying $158 per year for the privilege of being listed on ketamineclinicdirectory.org. 150. Okay, Adriana coming in hot with 150. I'm going to go with like 100. Okay, Hadas coming in with 100. Anna, what you thinking? Uh, I'll just throw out 80. Okay, I got to do some math. Um, the answer is 126. So Adriana is just ever so slightly closer than Hadass. 
ever <laughs> Just, so slightly. Yeah. Well, the reason the reason why, and I'll, I guess it's important to put it into context, is that because some of the really large ketamine plays that I've heard of don't really make it onto the news and don't really make it on to stages of conferences very often. So I'm talking about the acquisition. You know, there's heavy M&A activity in the realm of ketamine clinics. And so Delic Corp and Irwin Clay's ketamine network, like those things are not really talked about the, at that often, but every once in a while, the numbers will come up. And as a result of, you know, this and this transaction, this clinical network is now X, you know, many clinics. And so I don't track that super closely, but I remember that feeling of being like, oh, wow, it's more than I thought it was. Uh, you know, consolidation is already happening. m and activity started there before other areas of the psychedelic space. That's why. I did see. Yeah, I agree with that. The M and A thing. I did see some of the uh, some of the big names, like specifically like Field Trip, has all their clinics listed on here. So there there are some of the big players. But you're right. There's other big players who I didn't see. But I just I just thought it was kind of interesting as I was kind of pulling stats for this picks and shovels game. So in the interest of time, we'll move on. So for round one, our clear leader is Adriana picking up both points. <laughs> so let's go into round two. In round two, we're going to talk about therapists. So there are many groups offering psychedelics-assisted trainings from well-established organizations like MAPS and USONA to startups like Fluence. So I'm in San Francisco, and I wanted to zoom in on a program being offered in my neighborhood from the California Institute of Integral Studies. They have a program titled Certificate Program in Psychedelic-Assisted Therapies and Research. So let's see if you panelists can guess some of the metrics that I've pulled from this program. A common comment in the industry is that we don't have enough folks with proper training. So my first question for you is, how many trainees does CIIS have in its 2022 cohort for psychedelic assisted therapy training. Again, the direct question is California Institute of Integral Studies has this training program 2022 cohort going on now. How many students are in the cohort? Anna's thinking hard. Well, they have multiple they have multiple cohorts. Are you, it includes online and in person? And, yeah. and split. Yeah, you, y'all are so well informed. Yeah, it doesn't. My number includes both of those. Yes. If you want to be really impressive, you can tell me individually, but it's not it's not necessary. Really, just yeah. one number is fine. So for all of them this year, the one co they have one cohort a year. It's multiple cohorts one year. One hundred and fifty. It's there's a there's a hybrid cohort and there's an online cohort. My number encompasses all of it. And Adriana is guessing 150. She's confident. You know, she's out in front. So she's she's uh, she's feeling it. I'm going to say, yeah, that range feels right. I feel like 200. Okay, Anna, what you thinking? I'm going to shoot for the moon. I'll just go 300. Why not? Okay. All right. So uh, I'm going to do it a little bit different than the last round. Uh, I'm going to ask all the questions before I say answers. So next question is, how many hours do the participants spend in the program in total? So another way to put the question is, how many hours must a trainee spend 
to receive a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies from CIIS. I'm going to say, I have no idea, but I'm going to say 120. Okay, Anna coming in with 120. This is not including supervised hours. Oh, gosh. Um, Sorry. You know Annoying what? question. No, it's, <laughs> no, we love the questions. Right. Are these so, like credit um, hours or? Here's, here's, I'll tell you how I came to this number of hours. I looked at their program PDF and it just says in like four places how many hours and I just pulled that number. Ah. So um, it includes the there's course hours as well as it seems like they have like mandatory in-person hours, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it didn't appear to me like it was like med school where you like go to a residency. I didn't see like a residency similar component. Um, I think I went way too low now. Dang it. Well, you're correct, Nigam, because (laughs) even trainings like maps, there's one part they end with like a certain box checked and then they have to do their practicum or whatever it's called with other people, Mm. practicum hours to then get like, Oh, you've got now like the certificate, the the, the real, yeah, the real certificate. So, yeah. So you want us to guess how many hours? Hours total. All the hours. I want to change mine. I do want you to guess how many hours. No, I'm I'm changing it. (laughs) Okay. I'm I'm going, I'm going with 300 hours. 300. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Um, Anna's at three. (laughs) Anna's at 300. Well, I said 300, Anna. You yeah. want 300? I'll yeah. say 320. That's what I was revising. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I so 300 so people or 300 more. hours? Both. <laughs> we're, we're talking about hours now. 300 we're people, about, 300 hours, people. the 300. That's what they should call the program. <laughs> you guys, I hate numbers. I feel like I need to pull my... I'm like, how many hours are in a year or whatever? Like, I don't know. Who could say? But I'm going to go with... um. I don't know. 400. Keep it spicy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, All righty. Big reveal. So, in fact, the CIIS program includes only 150 hours. My original guess was... uh, That means Anna won. Anna wins and the industry loses because that's not enough hours. actually... So I got I got excited. How many and I people out of, were I there? Out of order. I revealed too early. Uh, hold on, we have one more question. Sorry, I, I got excited. Uh, ex- excuse my psychedelic excitement. So, um, last question for round two. So there's concern also in the industry about the cost of trainings. For example, I was just in Oregon for the first ever Horizons co- uh, conference there uh, ahead of the beginning of the. Oregon psilocybin programs in 2023. And there was a big focus on the cost of trainings uh, as well as the cost of the therapy. So I thought that was an interesting question. So last question, um, how much does the CIIS program cost? 12 grand. All right, Anna. I love your confidence, Anna. You're just hitting these now. I don't know. Okay, Anna's in with 12 grand. Um, I'm in 10. It's a year. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's like spring to fall. It's like a big part of a year. Spring to fall. Yeah. I keep, I, I stick to say 10, like 15. Okay. Adriana's on 10. Okay. 
10k and Hadas is on 15k. Yeah. If it's okay, only so 10, I'm doing me. it. <laughs> okay. Um, again, excuse my prior excitement. Um, the answers are so the first cue for part two was how many people are in the 2022 cohort? And the answer was 225. So Hadas was at 200. So Hadas has a point. She's on the board. She's on the board. Okay. For how many hours? Um, the answer is only 150, which I said a little bit early. So Anna is now also on the board. Okay. With her guess of 300. And uh, how much does it cost? The answer was $9,300. So that puts Adriana again in the lead as she guessed 10K. So just to uh, share the points before we go into the third round, Adriana leads with three points. Hadas and Anna both have one point. So here we go into the third round. This one is about technology providers. So I utilized one of our favorite resources here on the show for all things psychedelics industry, a very useful website called Psychedelic Alpha. And I looked into... So don't cheat now that I told you that. So I looked into uh, some of their companies they had listed on there as technology providers. So the companies that um, they have listed, I'm going to go ahead and post that in the chat for my panelists, are the following. So these companies are Homecoming, Maya, Wavepath, Ozmind, and Trip with two Ps. So here's some questions, and I'm just going to run these questions in order of who I see on my screen. Actually, that's not true. I'm going to give the hardest question to Adriana because she's an elite. So Adriana, your question is of these companies, name two that have a similar focus. It's the hardest question of the day. So this is tough for me because (laughs) it is hard for as much. Yeah. For as much as our work at plant medicine law group involves almost primarily infrastructure, I feel like some of these more tech heavy plays haven't really come into our lives very much. Um, the digital diagnostics or the technology um, uh, or, or the apps, whatever, however term you try to use. Um, so yeah, I, I confess ignorance as to kind of what they what they do. What I've paid more attention to are two things. One is the issue of data collection in general. So what does data collection mean and all, all that good stuff? And then also what data that is collected through these apps is not protected by HIPAA. And that's a learning curve that I want to go on. So I confess total ignorance on, 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 on the specificities of these companies to, to be able to analyze the, the similarities. So if you're passing on the question, uh, you actually have a strong lead in the game. So I'm going to give you that option if you want. I pass. 
All right. Look how respectful we are on this show. What a nice show. What a nice okay, show. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, Adriana and Hadass, though, you need the points. So let's see if y'all can rack up some points. Um, okay. Next question. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, that, that was such a cool response, by the way. And I'll, I'll, I'll share at the end the answer. So next question for Anna. Which of these companies is focused on creating and providing music for psychedelic therapies? The the options are in the chat, or I can read it if you want. Oh, the same ones. Same ones. Did you yeah. say company? So is it is it one or more? There, there's there's five companies. Right, but I mean the answer is the answer one. Oh, oh, just one. There's just uh, Adriana's question was harder. This is just one. There's only one company that focuses on music. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Maya. Okay. So we'll circle back in a second. Um, last question is for Hadas. Which of these companies is focused on augmented and virtual reality? Mm, okay. It's not Maya. It's not homecoming. I don't think it's wave path. I feel like it's possibly Ozmind, possibly Trip. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Trip. Can I add something? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I've never heard of any of these companies. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing based on like, if I were making a company, which name do I think is the best to do this? <laughs> so I'm, I'm being judgmental in a way, but I don't know anything. So. <laughs> so, so here's a big reveal. Um, Adriana with a healthy lead passed on this question still. So, uh, but the answer to her question was which of these companies has a similar focus homecoming Maya and Ozmind are all making, um, kind of tech platforms for, um, integration sessions for recording data for remote support for electronic health records all specific for psychedelic assisted therapy so any two of those three would have been the answer to one for the question second question which of these companies is focused on music that company is wavepath and uh anna and adriana you're saying you haven't heard of it uh go ahead and check it out wavepath school they're kind of doing something totally different in the psychedelic space um, focus on music, which myself as a musician, I think that's pretty cool. And um, so unfortunately, Anna, you, you don't get a point. Um, yeah, I know you're <laughs> upset. So, <laughs> yeah. Curious. I know, I know. So the uh, last one for um, which of these companies focuses on augmented and virtual reality, Hadas guess trip. And that is correct. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, so our final rankings are Adriana with three points, Hadas with two points, and Anna with one point. So congratulations to Adriana for the grand prize of advancing psychedelic science. Good job. <laughs> Does she get a canvas bag or what? Um, nah, just me clapping. That's okay. about all you get. So, um, and... Uh, for the sake of time, uh, thanks everyone for playing along with this game with me. That was very educational. Uh, we'll take a quick break for a message from our sponsor and we will be right back with our news segment.
Hey everyone, I'm Nate Howard, coming to you from downtown of Portland, and I'm a co-founder of East Fork Cultivars. Cultivar means cultivated variety, and that's what my cannabis farm and breeding company and direct-to-consumer company does. We breed specific cannabis cultivars, make specialty products focused on the therapeutic side of CBD and cannabis and hemp. And if you head to eastfortcultivars.com, you can check it out and order products anywhere you are in the world. All right, thanks. And we're back with our news segment. For today, we're going to focus on a recent press release titled American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, or APPA, launches nonprofit. So I'm going to read uh, just an excerpt from the release that I think is uh, a nice introduction to APPA. The American Psychedelic Practitioners Association exists to integrate psychedelics into the U.S. healthcare system and ensure safe access for all who can benefit from these treatments. APPA brings together and celebrates the diverse voices of our community while building consensus around the needed infrastructure for the healthcare and economic ecosystem to thrive. This includes establishing, as a community, the range of gold standards of care that can effectively help people feel better and find long-lasting relief. The APPA community will also develop standards of training and a system of accountability to establish psychedelic-assisted therapy as a reliable therapy ensuring its safe adoption and application throughout the country. So we're blessed to have a board member of APPA here with us. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, ask a question to Hadas. Hadas, can you tell us a little more about your motivation to start the organization and how things have been going since your launch at Horizons in New York a few weeks ago? Sure. So um, I'll just say, for one thing, I personally didn't start the organization. I'm on the board. Um, I'm also going to be their director of state initiatives um, coming up in a couple of weeks. And really, the purpose of APA is the safe integration of psychedelics into the U.S. healthcare system. So what we're doing is creating standards of care and standards of training so we can have APA-accredited training programs that will teach BPMT certified psychedelic practitioners, BPMT stands for Board of Psychedelic Medicine and Therapies, um, that will teach certified practitioners to provide quality clinical care. Um, And that's what's going to enable beneficiary reimbursement and insurance. And ultimately, what we're going to get to, the solve that I'm really, one of the things I'm excited about, is that's what's going to give us network sufficiency within the American healthcare system. So we're going to have enough providers to actually ensure reasonable, uh, reasonably priced, timely access to quality care for people. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we're doing at the high level. And then in terms of the how, we're sourcing all of the information for standards of care and standards of training from the community. So from people who have been in the work, um, whether you're indigenous practitioner or an anesthesiologist, um, and then uh, structuring it and aggregating it for like more of a formal regulatory FDA audience um, in its final format. 
And then we're doing um, advocacy work at the state level and at the federal level. Um, we'll be working with the federal task force. We'll be working with state legislatures, state campaigns like 109, 122, to make sure that practitioners' interests are represented at every level of the bill drafting, um, campaigning, rulemaking process. Because what I've come to realize is there's actually, there is no such thing as a non-practitioner issue when you're talking about psychedelic-assisted therapy. It all affects practitioners. Um, and it's a complex system, right? So a little change over here might result in something massive happening and unexpected happening on the other side. So we just need to be really thoughtful in how we think through um, structuring these these access pathways to ensure that practitioners can do what they need to do, which is provide quality care to everyone that can safely benefit. Got it. Okay. Well, very interesting. And uh, I want to ask Anna a question. So Anna, through your work with the Etheridge Foundation, you're providing grant funding to studies performed on uh, psychedelics for certain uh, issues such as opioid addiction and, and things like that. So of course, we're all excited for the future of psychedelics uh, medicine and practice. But for now, what's happening, a lot of what's happening is going on in the research or at the clinical trial level. So I, I'm curious uh, for you being involved in funding some of these studies, what do you see related to standards, be that standards of care or standards in the training uh, in your work? And um, do you see a need for that in the future as we go forward in this vein that APA is constructing? Absolutely. It's so important. Um, I mean, ethics is, is this uh, incredibly important pillar of, of healthcare in general. Um, but really, when you go back to, like, the very basics of being human, you know, how do we act in the world? Um, moral philosophy. Um, but, you know, more practically speaking, um, working with the Etheridge Foundation, we look to support research that aligns with our philosophy. Um, you know, our mission is, is around opioid use disorder and the use of transformative um, plant medicines and, and developing these treatments. Um, we feel like our support makes the most impact when we fund clinical trials. Um, we want to work with other research institutions who are not-for-profit. And, and I think that's a big piece, too, because there are obviously, you know, there's a lot of research going on, and a lot of it is um, for-profit entities or there's partnerships and and that's all you know everyone can do what they want but there's there is a need in healthcare in general for for people to be looking out for the best interests of humans before any profit motive um, that's a need across healthcare and so when we're starting this new space within healthcare and well-being um, you know we think there's still a need for nonprofits to fund research that is um, that is looking at only you know what are what's in the best interest of people versus um, any other mixed motives. So uh, and so when that research and we're not doing research for research research's sake, like like oh isn't this fascinating? No, it, we want to get that to actual treatments 
as soon as we can. And that means the infrastructure has to be ready. There has to be practitioners who are ready to provide those services in a way that is effective, ethical, and, um, you know, and we, we also believe holistic in that it will look at all the dimensions of human experience when you're looking at substance use disorders, you know, in particular, our focus, um, you know, we believe you can't just look at like this drug of abuse, but you have to look at mental health factors, trauma, all of the other pieces that go into um, creating these circumstances for, for so many people to struggle with substance abuse. So, um, so I think AAPPA is, is very needed. Um, it's an incredible, important development, and we're really excited to see that happening. Awesome. That's uh, great to hear from someone who's in the thick of it, uh, helping fund research. So, and not just helping fund it, but uh, assessing uh, research programs for consideration for funding. So, um, really appreciate that feedback, Anna. And my next question is for Adriana. So, at your law firm, Plant Medicine Law Group, you support a range of clients in the psychedelic space. So, are standards of care and standards of training something that are a concern at this point for clients that you're seeing or that will play into the work for the future? Or is that something that's, uh, you know, uh, are, are there more urgent matters in, in the current industry? I, I'm very curious for your kind of day in, day out perspective in the industry, Adriana. Is this something that you know, standards, is that something that folks are considering? Such a great question. And I love that I'm, I'm hearing you ask that question while I'm at an ethics conference, um, where people are brave and dedicated and asking some really difficult questions. Um, what I've been talking to people here about, and we've talked a lot about at the law firm is this understanding that the law ends quite early. I talk a lot with my hands, you can't see it, but let's say like I'm all the way on the extreme, you know, left of the of, of the of the screen. So the black and white law and, and conversations about what is legal and what is not kind of comes into the law firm, but it ends as a conversation pretty early on, let's say, in the life cycle of working with a um, with a, a client and a range of different clients. And what fills the screen, what fills most of our time with a client are conversations about best practices, conversations about choices that they can make that are not dictated by the law, choices that they make because we've learned things that have gone on in the underground and we don't want to replicate it, or we've borrowed mechanisms like whistleblower complaint mechanisms and, 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 and user complaint mechanisms, which are different, obviously, from whistle. We've heard these things in other industries. Let's borrow them and bring them in. So what we end up finding ourselves in is a situation in which we, as a law firm, are helping clients make decisions about best practices. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes we're the conduit to more information. We're not the experts necessarily on those best practices, but it's our job to know that best practices are being developed somewhere or that the conversation is taking place um, somewhere. So, so your question is, you know, are standards important? Yes. 
And what becomes kind of interesting is, you know, a law firm can be fairly agnostic, meaning our role, you know, the traditional role of a lawyer is to give advice. And if they take advice, then, then the, if the client takes advice, great. But if not, at the end of the day, it's the client's choice. But it's interesting working with clients at Plant Medicine Law Group. We have a different standard, which is we want to work with people who want to make the investment time and money-wise into pulling those best practices in, into developing them where they don't exist, um, and listening and taking our advice on, on, on these things. But I want to end this by saying that currently my opinion is, and I'd love to hear other people's take on this, but it's almost like the onus is falling on practitioners and business owners now to do the right thing because we are in an era where either standards are not yet published or they're not there there's no stick there's only a carrot um and so there's it's a little bit the wild west of choice and the wild west of choosing to invest money and time um in the development of best practices or the pulling in of best practices into a business yeah i think uh i think we see that too in my world in the scientific world it's it's very similar you you have a range of options and a range of you know operators who elect to follow best practices or not you know so um and it's actually uh i i'm i'm curious for that too uh anna hadas do you care to respond to what adriana just questioned well i'm I would say that it's a really welcome evolution that we're, we, you know, in our culture here in the U.S. around medicine, around psychedelics, that we're starting to expand our our conventional wisdom around, you know, Adriana talked about the black and white of like what's legal and what's not. Sure, you could have a law practice around just that. You could make money. You could make a living and be successful. But is there more to life? You know, and I think this is where psychedelics gives us an opportunity by the nature of these substances and the experiences they offer. It's very fitting that we would then um, sort of integrate, so to speak, um, some of the lessons that you can learn from these medicines into into our our practices, whether that's our daily life or business. You know, so how do we expand? expand our ways of knowing. And that it might sound really, you know, general, but um, I think it's going to tie into some of the things we're going to talk about later too. I actually think that ways of knowing is the perfect frame for it because like, I don't know that the, sh- the difference between the legal lens and the practitioner lens is like so great that it's ontologically different, But on some level, with all of the training you have to do to be one or the other, it kind of is. Like you are looking at the world differently to such an extent that sometimes you're really seeing a different world. And that's why people hire a lawyer or a doctor or they hire each other. But the reason I love working with practitioners as a lawyer is because, so they come in at first and they're typically very stressed because they are used to being experts, especially, you know, doctors are used to being experts and like knowing and their value is often based on how much they know. And they come in in 
you know, to a law firm in a situation where it's like, well, I don't know the law, but it affects my life now. And I need your help figuring out what is it that I'm going to, you know, how am I going to structure all of these components of my practice that abut against the law? Um, And so I think that there's something I, something that I say at the very beginning of that relationship, which is, you know, I'm not here as a lawyer to tell you how you are supposed to practice. And I have no, there's no confusion in my mind about the fact that I'm not going to take the law as like a cookie cutter and just put it on the dough of your practice um, and call it a day. Because I think that that's, that's bad for the practitioner and ultimately bad for the patient and then bad for the field. Because I think that all of this needs to be practitioner led, right? Like what is the medicine doing? How do we follow the medicine? Um, and that's informed by research and that's informed by all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, like when we're talking about patient care, I think it's so critical to attune, especially when your job is, you know, as a lawyer, like you're supposed to just tell people what to do and know everything. I think it's so important to listen and be like, okay, the safest thing in this situation for you, legally speaking, would to be, you know, have this form, have that form, have them sign something at the very beginning of ceremony. And like, that's, I think what most lawyers, that's how we're trained to think. But what needs to happen differently and what is happening differently in these conversations is like, well, what does that do to the therapeutic bond? Like, what does that do to trust? What does that do to the container? And how do we find this middle ground where everyone is protected and everyone is within the bounds of the law and things are clear and you can give consent because you truly are deeply informed, um, as informed as you can be about something ineffable, but like really as informed as you can be about something ineffable. Like, what does that mean, putting that in writing? Um, And at the same time, the practices are allowed, the protocols, the dosing, everything is allowed to operate in a way that maximizes beneficial outcomes. So really it's like maximizing benefit and maximizing safety. And I think that that's like something, you can't see my hands right now, but I'm doing like a linking gesture. Like the benefit comes and then the safety comes and that's a conversation between the practitioners and the lawyers. And it's not like one group telling the other what to do. And I think one of the things that, to piggyback on what Hadass said about, you know, not, not imposing that relationship, I think we also have to acknowledge in this conversation about creating standards, what we are going to say, what we are going to shed. So, um, you know, at this, at this conference that I'm at now, there are conversations going on about, you know, when people say things like, you know, ethics comes from the inside, right? We, you know, practitioners, you know, feel through the medicine what their ethics should be, right? And, and, and that's a situation where we have to say no, right? We have to say that there are certain types of ethics that we will have really difficult conversations about, but then we're going to say this and this is not okay. So that, so that consumers and patients that are coming into this field are not going to be in a situation where, where, you know, their healer feels like their inner ethics is guiding them to touch an anus. And we've, we've had that conversation, right, as a field. And we're going to say certain types of touch, certain types of, of behavior are not going to be 
um, in this realm. Um, and so I think that it's 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 important to have the the bravery to say, you know, yes, you know, there are difficult things to define, like Hadass said, you know, like something that is ephemeral, something that is transformative, but we're also going to put down some lines in the sand to protect people that that need that vocabulary, that need those guardrails. And there are other areas of our lives where we do that. We're going to do that here. Definitely. Uh, well, thank you for that, everyone. For the uh, sake of time, for HLI time, we're going to move to our next segment uh, here in just a moment. So uh, take a listen to a message from our sponsor, and we will be right back after the break. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. We're going to jump into our peer-reviewed literature discussion for today. We're focused on a paper published in a journal called Anthropology of Consciousness, which is run by the American Anthropological Society. The abstract is very poignant, so I'm just going to read it for the listeners. The Western world is experiencing a resurgence of interest in the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, most of which are derived from plant or fungi with a history of indigenous ceremonial use. Recent research has revealed that psychedelic compounds have the potential to address treatment-resistant depression and anxiety, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder and addictions. These findings have contributed to the decriminalization of psychedelics in some jurisdictions and their legalization in others. Despite psychedelics' opaque legal status, numerous companies and individuals are profiting from speculative investments, with few if any, benefits accruing to indigenous peoples. In this paper, we suggest that the aptly named psychedelic renaissance, like the European renaissance, is made possible by colonial extractivism. We further suggest that indigenous philosophical traditions offer alternative approaches to reorient the psychedelic renaissance towards a more equitable future for indigenous peoples psychedelic medicines in all our relations. So I thought that was very poignant. Uh, I think our conversation uh, throughout the show already has, has led up to this rather nicely. So I want to just say uh, some highlights. I mean, the, this paper was like 15 pages long. There's a lot in it. Um, but I just want to read some big takeaways I had uh, before I pass the mic. So they talk about the story of Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina. So if people don't know that story, if you're interested in psychedelics, you don't know the story. Uh, 
go read about it. Go learn about it. It's essentially a story of one side giving trust and help and the other side bringing in basically destroyers of a culture and it didn't end well for the indigenous culture there. Um, there's this concept in the article of imperial baggage and that's something that it's it's hard to move past in the modern era, but I think it uh, it 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 sticks around, and and I thought that rung true. Um, there were some other things about this absolutism of Western conception, and I thought that was a perfectly fair thing to challenge. I mean, I personally am half Indian, so I have a lot of Eastern conceptions in my mind and in my culture. So. Um, I'm very open to this and, and I think it's good for other folks to be open to, you know, challenging any absolutism and specifically in Western imperialist conception. Um, in that vein, there was a comment, uh, that indigenous of, of indigenous people. Some of them have a, uh, a belief that for example, forests think rivers are persons and plants are intelligent. As an example, Western botanists define one species of ayahuasca vine based on its floral morphology, whereas indigenous knowledge keepers recognize several vines of ayahuasca based on both the plant morphology and the effects on the people that ingest it. That, that's a direct quote from the article. So um, I, I want to stop hogging the mic. Let me see if there's other ones that I really want to shout out here. There's this concept that mushrooms are not considered to be drugs or psychoactive substances, but rather sacred entities to have a reciprocal relationship with. Um, there's also this concept of uh, place versus discourse. The Western society favors the discourse. The indigenous society favors the place and the power that comes from that place. And there's this thing called MTH, more than human power. So that goes back to the place. That goes back to the land. That goes back to this generational um, knowledge building that comes from generation on generation on generation being with the land, with the rivers, with the forest, with the plant. Um, they even have a reference from Shulgin the most famous psychedelic chemist talking about this MTH power and how he relates it to the contact high. So um, last thing I'll say uh, big um, emphasis here on the land back movement. And so we're talking about the land itself being where the power, the more than human power emanates from. Um, and then uh, there's a takeaways at the end of the article, these big five takeaways that, that anyone who reads this should, should go check out. So uh, enough of me talking. Uh, we are, are very lucky to have Anna Simons with us. So Anna is actually working on a initiative through the Etheridge Foundation that is um, supporting some of the goals that this article is talking about. So uh, Anna, I'd love for you to share with us uh, what you're working on at Etheridge. Thank you for the chance to talk about this. So I, I want to say, first of all, that what we're doing is a really small, humble first step. Um, but, you know, as we've said, the Etheridge Foundation focuses on funding research. And as we, you know, as we assess our mission, we understand that there is more to, to research, to knowing 
um, than simply what's happening in labs and clinics. And that there's a lineage of knowledge that comes directly from various indigenous cultures and, and biocultures, meaning um, the ecosystem and the plants and people and animals and all the living beings um, are inseparable from one another. So the knowledge and the practices and the relationships between all these living beings are, um, you know, they're, they're inextricable. We can't just say, thanks for the plant. See you later. We're going to go use it. Uh, I mean, we can, but what damage are we doing? So, you know, essentially it just boils down to the fact that we want to help people who are struggling with addiction issues, which is a, a scourge on our society. But it's not right to do that at the expense of other people and other peoples. So we need to look at the bigger picture and we need to acknowledge <laughs> the roots of our, uh, of our knowledge and practices around these medicines. And roots meaning not just like the origins in the past, but roots still connected to, you know, the rest of the plant, still feeding and nourishing back and forth. Um, so there's this idea, this concept of reciprocity that's kind of gotten thrown around a lot. But I think some of the, you know, some organizations who do work in these areas with indigenous-led initiatives are, are saying, wait a minute, we're not ready for reciprocity because reciprocity implies consent. And what we have here is a history, uh, not of consent, of taking, you know, of simply taking one culture coming in and imposing its worldview to um, excuse, uh, you know, our actions um, to the detriment of other cultures. And, and that's happening, by the way, not just in psychedelic medicines. That's happening across the board with um, factors of global commerce. But because, you know, our focus is here in psychedelic medicines and we're in a time when we can set precedents for how things are, are going to go, um, we should be considering all these issues. So to that end, so we're starting this practice that we're calling um, root relationship contributions. And so every time we give a research grant, we're going to give an additional 5% um, matching companion grant to um, indigenous-led biocultural conservation projects related to that particular medicine. Um, and like I said, this is a start. It's a very humble percentage and amount and we aim to increase both as we keep building our organization. Um, but really, it's, it's a, an effort and a recognition and a movement towards this idea of right relationship, which is, um, you know, caring for, for all, all aspects and all dimensions of, of creation. <laughs> and, you know, so... So yeah, so we're, we're starting this initiative and we hope it's going to set a precedent for other organizations that fund research specifically to say, you know, we're not going to separate this out and just fund this, but we're going to recognize that everything is connected and everything has ripples. That's, I mean, because that's one of the big lessons that we get from these medicines is interconnection and this greater sense of unity with, with our universe and other living things um, to our benefit. You know, that is therapeutic, that is healing, and that's one of the big things that, um, you know, is it, it continually comes up in, in the takeaways from people's experiences with these medicines is that they feel a much greater unity. So 
why would we not apply that lesson where we have this amazing opportunity to do to do better you know and we can't change the past but we can make concrete actions that move in the right direction we can start listening to um indigenous people themselves around what they want and need in their communities how to preserve their languages their cultures their land um so yeah so it's a very humble step but we hope we'll we'll set a trend and a practice for others well thank you for sharing anna and i think that there's this kind of notion that there's an opportunity and a risk here in the modern psychedelics industry that it can be a renaissance in the vein of the prior renaissance extractivist like this article is pointing out or a lot of people think that it can be a chance to reorient and so uh you know really appreciate etheridge showing leadership even in a small way in focusing in on that reorientation and doing something about it you know and and not everything that's done is good this article talks about how some companies for-profit companies they do a donation and or they and a donation is not enough you know or it's not uh it doesn't go to that right relationship right and then they talk about things like uh, initiatives that do go about it in the right way. Um, so I think that it's really it's really wonderful that um, that the Etheridge Foundation and others have had the humility to say we want to do this, but we are not going to reinvent the wheel ourselves. Let's find out who is already doing this work and supporting their efforts, not replicating, not diluting, not competing in many ways. Um, and so the fact that Anna and others are supporting the work that Miriam Vallott and the River Sticks Foundations and others are doing with the Indigenous Conservation Fund, to me, is very important because I think waking up one morning and saying, I'm going to run this business or I'm going to run this nonprofit and I'm going to you know, enter into relationships by myself, completely brand new with indigenous communities, I think that that can also replicate a lot of harm. So I think that having the humility of saying, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to go to people who have, who are literally in the business or in, in that world every day um, and navigating the politics of, of it and navigating the sensitivities of it and then supporting their efforts. I think that that is incredibly um, important. Absolutely. Uh, Hadass, did you want to weigh in on this article? Do I ever? Um, this is so interesting and I want to talk about this for like six years, but just briefly I'll say, um, Anna, one of the things that you mentioned that I, I, I wanted to name is like this concept of isomorphy that I see popping up a lot in this space where there's like things will be things on different, like sort of like micro Mesa macro levels will be similar um, in terms of shape, form, quality, structure. And I think that that's a good thing not to get too psychedelic with it, but it feels like fractally, um, where I think that we have, you know, when we can take, especially when you think about the more than human power, um, of, of these medicines and the ontological shifts in how Westerners might relate to mushrooms, to psilocybin versus how non-Westerners might relate. And that like 
animated nature, you know, like mushrooms, psilocybin is not mushrooms there. It is mother's breath. It is literally the mother's breath, the breath of the earth. And you regard that very differently than you do like a commodity or even like a, you know, like a a medicine that you buy. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, um, and to have there be like a, an isomorphy, a similarity between that relationship, that direct relationship that a person has to a plant, to a fungi, to a medicine. Um, and think about how do we scale that up at the regulatory level? So our regulations are not just matched to this like Western possibly medicalized, possibly not conception of these medicines, because if they are, we will be inherently replicating the tra- the system we are all collectively trying to heal from and to heal. And we will be excluding indigenous people and we will be excluding people who have carried this medicine. And beyond that, I think we will actually be excluding a lot of people who need this medicine if we fail to understand like there is more one than one way to relate to it. Um, I think like part of the terror of the war on drugs is what it's done to BIPOC's, BIPOC people's ability many, many times to sit comfortably with medicine and to feel like you're not committing a crime. Like it's like set, setting in matrix. If you go in thinking like I'm doing something bad, that's probably going to affect your trip. And if you go back into a world where you can't talk about it because like mental health and or drug use isn't something that is safe to talk about given where you are socially located, um, that's an access issue. And so, yeah, all of the things. I feel like this is such important work and it's so deeply layered. And I think part of why there's so much to say is because we have to, like, we don't have to assess it through every lens, but I think it's our job as people at the table to find the people who can assess it through an indigenous lens and really like platform their voices. And one of the things I want to add to temper the conversation in a, or add a new direction to the conversation is what I've been calling indigenous washing. So just like we have pink washing, we have green washing um, in, in, in the world, I have found the other side of this coin complicated. And the other side of the coin is companies that have understood the value of saying they are doing certain things for the creation of their brand and for the um, value of their pitch deck and unfortunately, I've often been in a situation to peek behind the wind, the, the curtain and see that, you know, donations haven't been made. The, the system hasn't been funded. The, the thing hasn't been incorporated. And however, that saying that they will do, that promise that they will do has already gotten them stage time, has already gotten them a certain shine in the industry. And so I... I am very, very, very wary of what this, of what that means um, down, you know, down the road and in the short term to indigenous communities. And so I think that it behooves all of us to not just take a company 
or a foundation at their word that they're doing something and asking the follow-up question. Be like, that's great that you've done that. What is your mechanism for doing that? That's great that you say you're going to do that or that you said you've done it. What dollar amount? To who? How? What were the conditions? And not give people any more credit than they've already received for saying that they will support Indigenous initiatives. And who are the Indigenous stakeholders at the table in those conversations? And are you paying them for their time? Right. I think a lot of this is about, it's it's a chance for the psychedelic space to help lead, honestly, the evolution of our culture, of, you know, Western culture, if you want to call it. Uh, other, many other traditional cultures have practices and and protocols and norms that are much less harmful than the ones that we have. You know, the the way that we are have been doing things is destroying the earth. It's destroying our all of our ability to live, and it's making people miserable. Um, so, like everything, intentions matter and outcomes matter, and you have to make sure that you're doing it right. And that's why it's really important to connect with credible people who are, you know, that projects are truly indigenous led. Um, and that efforts are genuine intentions. I've also heard that called tie-dye washing from the psychedelic side. But, you know, I mean, many other cultures, I mean, I think we have a lot to learn. Um, our culture has come in with not only, um, you know, around the world with colonialism, with a, a breathtaking ruthlessness and brutality, but also um, an extreme arrogance that persists in matters of, of, of basic philosophy, including our you know, the way that science can be very dismissive of other worldviews that, that have equal validity, to say the least. Um, and so, you know, so we need to learn some lessons. We need to learn our manners. <laughs> and in most societies, you don't come in without being invited. You don't just say, oh, I have the ability to go there. I want to go there. I'm just going to go there. You wait until you're invited. You ask first and you receive consent. Um, not not coerced either, not like Gordon Wasson did with Maria Sabina and really like pestered her and badgered her and, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, right, so that's this idea of right relationship. That term actually even comes from um, from Quaker traditions. You know, so there are many different spiritual traditions, cultural traditions that we as a collective in the U.S. and Western societies can learn from and need to if we want to have life on earth continue and to be beautiful and, you know, um, biodiversity, cultural diversity, and listening to our elders. That's another thing we need to learn. Um, and so many of these societies are very much our elders. We need to listen and, uh, and you know, learn and, and act right. We need to learn how to act right. We're unruly children that have caused a lot of damage. So on a societal <laughs> level, right? Yes, so, yes. Um, so uh, really appreciate all these uh, insightful comments on this article. Um, sheerly for the sake of HLI time, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. And, uh, you know, a lot of times in this part of the show on the we call rapid fire science, where we look at peer reviewed articles, we often will kind of critique the article. I didn't I didn't have any critiques of this article. I just learned a lot and I would encourage anyone to just read and try to process. So what I'm going to do to close it out rather than commenting myself, I'm just going to read uh, very briefly the summations because the article offered five conclusions and I I think they're excellent. So I'm just going to read these in very brief. So conclusion one, please slow down. 
and take time to consider our relationship with plant and fungi medicines. And then skipping ahead, there is a simple process to do things properly. Respect, connect, reflect, direct. Going to number two, invite indigenous intellectuals and spiritual leaders to participate in advisory capacities regarding current practice and the future of psychedelics, both in government, non-government, and private sector. Number three, set up indigenous ethics watch organizations for psychedelic sphere staffed by paid indigenous specialists serving to ensure plant medicine related initiatives do not cause harm to indigenous peoples. Number four, establish a funding mechanism to support indigenous aspirations. Uh, And this is essentially in brief, they're saying like, for example, in Oregon where you're getting a legalized mechanism and there's going to be tax dollars and all that just put some of the money into indigenous aspirations, period. Okay, the last one is to avoid biocolonialism and to recognize local expression of property and to disseminate indigenous philosophies to a larger audience. Uh, They're also saying to avoid this kind of legal pluralism um, that's used to kind of exploit uh, indigenous knowledge or land and that kind of stuff. So those are the big five takeaways. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much to uh, our panelists. Uh, thank you to our audio engineer, our artists, our sponsor. Uh, we will see you next time on HLI. Thanks for listening. <laughs>